Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 70 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, the Mandolin Cafe. Hey, sorry for the delay here. Uh, definitely not feeling great. I wanted to get this up here. This is a great one with Scott this week, man. Um, such such cool stories. So it was a pleasure to uh, to talk to Scott. And, and again, sorry on the delay. I'm glad it's going up here today. Just a reminder, if you want to support the podcast, you can head over to Patreon. I've got two different levels. One's a $4 level if you want to support the podcast. And the other one is an $8 level where you can get tabs and and videos of different things from 10 minute a day examples and uh, tunes and scales and all sorts of fun stuff. So if you have a chance, be sure to check that out. And a very special thanks to those of you who signed up new last week. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. I want to thank my sponsors this week, Peghead Nation, who just upgraded their website, and it is stellar. Um, you should go there and check it out. You can get 30 days for free by using the code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. And um, they've really added some great upgrades, too, where you can check off the classes you've done and where you can take uh, uh, leave off with what you've done. They've got, they've got great instructors, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Comp- Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning. So you can't really go wrong. And even if you play other instruments besides mandolin, they've got them all. Mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. Killer videos, downloadable tab and notation, and play-along tracks. So check them out. Especially check out the new site. It looks incredible. So I want to thank Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Also, Ear Trumpet Labs. This, I'm going, I'm going off the cuff on this one. I got one of the blackout Edwinas I'd been talking about for weeks. They are so incredible looking. And I used it live for the first time this past Saturday, and we were at a pretty good size outdoor venue. And I will be the first to tell you, I don't think I've ever really had a great experience with the one mic setup. This was just a duo. We've definitely tried the one mic thing before, but it was always, it just seemed noisy and background noise, and it never really worked out. And this Edwina absolutely blew my mind. First off, it was so quiet, I didn't realize it was on. Um, So when I said like test, test, test into the microphone, it was really loud. (laughs) And I got to be honest, um, with this duo, we've played hundreds of gigs together and it has got to be the most intricate our our playing had been together and our harmonies, um, this, the, the ability to play into one mic with no cables and have the most natural sound blown away. And it is December and uh, holidays right around the corner. Inner Trumpet Labs make great gifts for any musician in your life. Versatile for studio use, live streaming, and live gigs. So treat your loved one, treat yourself to an Ear Trumpet Labs mic. And also want to thank Pava Mandolins. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. And again, thank you guys for tuning in every week and listening. Let's get into this episode with Scott. Scott's going to be sending me a track, unfortunately, because of a... Uh, the delay and stuff here i wasn't able to get it up here on this week's episode but next week we'll be debuting a tune from scott's private stash of songs really excited for that and uh scott's a great guy man um it's it's no wonder when you listen to this episode that he has been nominated twice for the ibma mentor of the year let's get into the episode with scott cheers everybody All right, and it's now it's my pleasure to uh, welcome to the podcast Scott Napier. Scott, how's it going today? Hey, how are you doing, Daniel and uh, Mandolin peeps? It's uh, going great. I'm here in Kentucky, and we just had our first little snow, so I'm snowed in our little house <laughs> with, a, with my mandolin and a pile of records I've been going through. That's amazing, yeah. and that's a uh, this is a perfect segue because. One of the things that I absolutely love that you have been doing is this vinyl record giveaway. And um, I think it's amazing. So if anybody who hasn't seen this yet, I'd love for you to maybe talk a few seconds about that and and what influenced you to do that, because I think it's an amazing thing you're doing. Sure. Thank you. I mean, um, at my age, I've been going for records way before they were cool again. So (laughs) we're talking late 90s, uh, mid 90s when, but I've just... You know, in my area of Eastern Kentucky, they're they're everywhere. Bluegrass records, they're just around. <laughs> Mainly because I think people like Ralph Stanley and you know all the the bands played really heavily here, and they sold their records 
locally. So I've just I've acquired a pretty good collection of records for the past 25 years, <clears throat> and I just noticed a turn in music in general to where even even a CD or whatever you don't you don't buy the album anymore. You download the song, right? So and then I thought about those records and those great albums that they're listening to were the concept of that thing was a package of songs. A lot of them are concept records to where it's so much better to hear it all. You know, the whole, the whole total package. Oh yeah. The way it was recorded, you know, the tones, the era of the musician, what they were playing at that time. I mean, they put them out, like I said, as 10 or 12 song deal. That's not one song downloaded. So that started it. Um, I just started noticing um, a lack of that mentality. You know, it's quick access to do the one song, the, the 99 cent download or whatever. But <clears throat> and, and then the resurgence of records, vinyl. Um, a lot of younger kids, 20-something and on down, were, um, were getting into to records. <clears throat> and they're just and, – and also my years of traveling on the road, I've, I know that a lot of this stuff's harder to find at a yard sale in Iowa or somewhere, for, you know, <laughs> right. for instance. So I, I don't know. I just felt – I just I was tickled about it, and it was really cool to see youngsters, young musicians buying, you know, turntables and records. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to pick out some of my favorite, most influential albums and just give them away to kids, to kid musicians. And it's been really successful for me so far, um, gratifying, you know. And I've had probably 50 to 60 kids who've reached out to me, and I've only done two. So, Oh, that's um, so cool, man. Yeah. The first one was the my top five instrumental records, then a, then partial to the mandolin. I just did top five. And, and again, it's not, there's way more than five great ones. These were just records that were really influential to me and records that I have duplicated duplicates of because you know there's some records i just if i see it i buy it oh (laughs) absolutely yeah over and over again though (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so yeah i mean just placing them in the right hands i mean that uh, just just the first and foremost the music but just the experience of the record you know the way they smell all that the cover the artwork just the manual labor or enjoyment that goes into playing it the upkeep the care of it all that stuff you know all that comes into play. So, but I also I'm guilty of though pulling them. You know, I'm unsure about a record. I pull it up on YouTube. <laughs> you know, I do that. But, you oh know. sure, me too. I especially stuff that's like out of print. You know, and and you can't right, find it right. anywhere. Like I'll happily buy it. But if I if it's not available to buy and you want to check out, and there's so many. I mean, like you said, like some of. I mean, some of my heroes, and I'm guessing some of your heroes, you know, are um, they recorded a lot of stuff, and sometimes for different labels, and not all of that stuff's been reissued. And fortunately, there's that killer um, bluegrass channel out there on YouTube. Takes I don't know if it's Take or Takis. Oh yeah, wow, yes. He's just He's gone through it. Oh, just all that old vinyl that's not able to be done any longer and he puts it out there it's so good such a resource no doubt i mean i've learned a lot from from that channel myself but as you said back in the old days a lot of the sidemen or even a session players got no credit on the records and i've discovered a lot of that and it's been fun for instance herschel sizemore he's on a lot of records without even his name on the back you know just playing for instance he's on a tommy jackson fiddle album it's like 1963 or something, and it's just this this mandolin is so futuristic at the time to me when I hear it, and I find out it's Herschel, and oh, it's definitely wow. Herschel after you figure it out. But stuff like that, you know, there's all this the mystery that's involved will just make you want to put your hands on it. You know, you just want to research and dig in there. So, well, that's an awesome thing that you did, man, and are doing. Are you going to do a third? Oh, yeah. I have a few more in mind. Uh, for instance, the gospel records. Um, oh, cool. I'd probably do a banjo, um, maybe all the instruments. Yeah. But yeah. And, and also, I'll have to give um, a guy who wished to, he wished to, he wants to remain anonymous, but he gifted me a pretty massive record collection because of this to oh, just spread wow. the wealth. Yeah. Gosh. And it's pretty much 50 years worth of, I must have bluegrass records they were all one owners and really cared for so 
yeah, I want to definitely pass it on. So have you already yeah. taken, have you taken possession of that collection? Yeah. My live, my living room sort of looks like, um, classic record shop right now. Yeah, I was going to say, how awesome was <laughs> yeah. it to take that? That's like a kid in a candy store moment, man. Yeah, no doubt. Yep. Well, yeah. I don't. I can't think of many other people who uh, deserve it like you do, especially with your love of the vinyl and what you're doing with turning the, the, the young players onto it, man. So congrats on that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So when you were a young player, what is it that got you into mandolin? Well, again, back we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I was, I was a heavy metal guy. You know, I'm, I'm talking, I was 12, 13. Um, I just, I, I was listening to a lot of music. The music was calling me the expressive part of it. <clears throat> Electric guitar, the whole nine yards, um, Led Zeppelin, all that, in which I still love that music. <clears throat> but one night on TV, it was, I think it was a show called uh, the American music shop. And that stuff's out there on YouTube now. And it's, once a year, they had a bluegrass night, and I just happened to find it on this big floor model TV. I was flipping along, <laughs> and I didn't know who any of these people were at the time, but it was, say, maybe the 1992 IBMA Instrumentalist of the Year. And it was like it was Tony Rice on guitar and Sam Bush on the mandolin. I think Mark O'Connor on the fiddle, Roy Husky Jr. on the bass, Jerry Douglas. Um, I don't think I'm leaving anyone out. Wow. But anyway, okay, I, I'm seeing all these people. It's it's Greek to me, and I'm from, I'm from here in Eastern Kentucky. We you know we have a long-standing bluegrass tradition here, and I, I'd heard that stuff, you know, like the Stanley Brothers, and I appreciated it. But watching these guys play, and it, maybe it was I'm pretty sure it was Randy Lynn Rag even, but I don't know. Sam just stuck out to me because you know at the time he, like I said, I was a I was a heavy metal guy. And, <laughs> He had the moves, he had the hair, but most importantly, he was just, it looked like he was just ripping this little instrument to shreds, this baby guitar, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm not from a musical family, so um, I had to go, you know, seek this stuff out. It was around, but I had to find it. But it just really, really got to me. And so from there, I just, I wanted a mandolin, you know, and I, I just, I got that and Found found that guy again at the music store. It was a homespun uh, instrumental VHS tape of oh, Sam Bush. Yeah. Well, okay. I didn't I didn't realize any of this, but it was level four, which was the most advanced. I was <laughs> I was just learning how to make a G chord. I, mean, I was a total <laughs> beginner, and I sat down with that thing, and I thought, wow, I've got a lot of work to do. You know, I can't I can't play this thing like that. But I think at that moment, it just set forth the drive and determination that. You have you have to really put a lot into this if you're going to play it. So I I never look back, and in fact I still have the the uh, VHS and and have since became friends with with Sam, and it's just been real a great experience. I mean to to get to know and pick with your musical hero, you know. I mean it's it would have been like the the heavy metal guy getting to jam with Eddie Van Halen. You know that was that's what it's like. So. the great thing about bluegrass is your your idols aren't so far out of reach in fact they reach out to you if you're if you're serious about it in most cases so so what did it look like once you kind of dove in did you did you start a band was there like a jam scene or a, a scene of like-minded musicians around there then for you yes and no like you might ex expect i i gravitated toward the old guys you know mm -hmm. that were playing Playing Ralph Stanley and um, Lester Flat, you know the the what I would what I would consider hardcore traditional, but right out of the gate though, in general, I've always had a broad sense of love for all the all kinds of music. So I've just I've always tried to find the good the goodness in whatever music it is. So so I, w I wasn't 
I wasn't like trashing the traditional guys. Um, but on, and, and also I was, I was listening to jazz. I was trying always trying to find music to learn from, but <clears throat> so yeah, here in, in Hazard, Kentucky, my hometown, <clears throat> I got teamed up with, uh, just local musicians. Uh, one of them, one crucial moment though, was one of them knew Marion Sumner, who was a fiddle legend. In fact, he, he taught Kenny Baker how to play the fiddle. He Whoa. was his, yeah, he used to give him lessons and Kenny praised him, but he was a Western swing guy. I mean, he, he even played on the Grand Ole Opry staff band in the, in the early forties. Holy cow. And he was, yeah. He was an incredible musician, but I started going to his house. I was, by that time I was maybe 15 and into 16. I remember I used to go to his house in a, a big old LTD car when I only had my driver's permit <laughs> and I would drive up to his place. It was the next town over and he would just, it, he just floored me with, and still to this day though, he was, he's one of the greatest musicians I ever sat in front of. Um, but he, he would play, like I said, he was a fiddle player. He's like, I don't really play mandolin, you know, but I can get some notes out of it. He would say, and it was straight up uh, Jethro Burns, Dave Appeline type stuff. Seriously, though, he, he was incredible. And that was that was that really excelled me. I, I mean, I've got to I've got to learn how to do this. You know, I've got to get a lot better to be satisfied. So that that was another moment early on. And from there, um, just playing local local stuff um, was at Renfro Valley Bluegrass Festival here in Kentucky. Um, saw a bunch of people for the first time. Again, my family's not musical; they didn't. They didn't know what was going on with me, <laughs> why well, I was obsessed with this stuff all of a sudden. But in fact, I got dropped off there and I just walk in. I'm I'm maybe 14 or 15. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And it's people like the Osborne brothers, uh, Mac Wiseman, um, Allison Krause. She was, she. I think, I had, I, looking back, I think she was 19. It was before she really took off. Sure. And she was there. All these people. And I was just, again, I was just around them and was this little kid with a guitar getting them to to sign the guitar and it was just it really done a lot for me just the inspiration to be that close to these people to try to figure out what they were doing uh, but also I saw Larry Sparks there and I, I I knew him from the radio here at home and it was his show was incredible and he announced that his mainland player would be leaving after the summer this was in June I think of 95 I think it was and I thought, I was, I'm a really shy kid. So I'm like, what the <laughs> I, I found my way backstage and just told him that I want to be his next mandolin player. And he didn't know me from Adam. And I, re I remember uh, Dale Reno was there, and I just remember him being there. And one thing led to another, and we, I met him later that winter at a place here in, nearby called the Apple Shop Theater. And he just called me up. He's like, come by and we'll pick a few he what? never heard, really heard me play i mean i was picking some with the banjo player in the lobby and then i'm thinking he must he must have a little faith in me <laughs> he invited <laughs> me up on stage and we and i have this on cassette tape but it i mean he really put me to the test he he did blue virginia blues and you know the mandolin kicks it off it's all it's a lot of mandolin Kentucky banjo, which was like 200 beats per minute, and they did, <laughs> they did not they did not hold anything back. And
I, I think listening back to it, I was raw and would just dig in, and he probably liked that. But also, I was constantly out of tune. <laughs> so, but, you know, and I think Larry always was kind of, he was all about the underdog. So he took a chance on me, you know, and that lasted for nine years, almost 10 years. I never missed a show with him. He played on five or six or seven records, um, got to do some cool stuff. We played the Grand Ole Opry a bunch. And again, met, was around all of my heroes for a long time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. He just incredible experience. Um, just phenomenal musician, you know? Yeah. So to, to learn on stage in front of a bunch of people all over the country, that's the best education a musician could ask for. Oh my gosh. No kidding. Yeah. How long had you been playing when you went backstage and were just like, Hey, <laughs> I want to be your Let's next see. mandolin player. Yeah. Right. Thir- maybe five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still though. Yeah. Like from 13, <laughs> yeah. 13 to, to 17, basically. Wow. Yeah. And and it took a it took a, a lot of nerve because I was just so darn shy. <laughs> oh my and, gosh, yeah. And yeah, and right out of the gate, I mean, we were all over the country and a few months later I was in Japan. I'd rarely been out of eastern Kentucky. I mean it was very much um, <laughs> wow. fifty years later, but very much like coal miner's daughter. I mean, that's that's pretty much my where I'm from. So <laughs> wow. it was that kind of experience. But what yep. was it like to go to Japan? You know, I mean, because Japan's got a pretty, pretty big bluegrass scene. I mean, I don't know how big yeah. it is compared to, you know, other music, but like the scene that is there is pretty, seems pretty rabid. Very hardcore there. I think the scene is smaller than it used to be, but it's, um, they they were very fluent. And I, I remember that, um, speaking, I mentioned Herschel Sizemore a minute ago, he had just been over there, I think prior and Frank Wakefield. So they all, that's all they were talking about was, was, uh, Frank and the festival shirts, you know, they, the band was just typical attire. You know, we were all just wearing festival shirts that the festivals would give you the shirts and stuff. You know, if you did a workshop or something, <laughs> they were really all about those. They wanted our shirt. They wanted our shirts. They tried to buy our shirts and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the banjo player, took two banjos over for Sonny Osborne. He's like, you'll sell these immediately. And I guess he gave him a little money. Sure enough, he, like the first night they were gone. So, wow. and I think the plan was he, he took a banjo to sell, but he had to play it while he was there. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, it was just far enough back to where you were around a lot of, like I said, a lot of the heroes and influence, the people that are no longer here, you know, um, like, well, like Kenny Baker, for instance, and Ralph Stanley and Charlie Waller, um, just all those people. And I was fortunate to be old enough, I guess, at that point to to have gotten to know a lot of the iconic, legendary figures now that, that younger musicians can only get to know through people that knew, him, knew them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, Did you get to jam but, with Kenny Baker? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we played in uh, my, one of my best memories was with doc watson i mean i got to play some with oh doc. <laughs> holy cow yeah. Whoa. and i had for a long time i had it on a real early uh, digital camera video but it's it's a lot i don't know where it is but we were we were backstage at the ryman auditorium and it was it was with larry sparks and we were opening for for doc and i was standing back we just did our sound check and I was standing off to the side of the stage, and I instantly recognized his voice. He says, "Come in here, son, with that mandolin. I got to get my fingers limbered up." <laughs> <laughs> and I was, <laughs> and I was, I was nervous and excited, but he was. It was such a great experience. I mean, I remember we played uh, Watson's Blues and. Um, sang some, some blues stuff. Oh, wow. And, and we just played played some blues. But yeah, yeah, some really fond memories of my, you know, years playing with Larry Sparks. Um, 
Man, it's that's amazing. Yeah. Holy cow, man. <laughs> that's I can't you're just just thinking about Kenny Baker and, and Doc Watson and playing with them is that's like wow, that's that's so amazing. Like speechless. <laughs> well, I mean, seriously, looking back though, I mean, being around a lot of youth uh, in bluegrass as a as a teacher, um, I just and and that applies to me. I mean, when I was younger, I was around people that worked with Bill Monroe. You know, I never got to play with Bill Monroe, so it's just how that works. I mean, you just get to spread your knowledge in in any form of, of fashion, but through experience it's all about that experience and and starting young but it's never too late to, to learn i have lots of students who are you know middle-aged and older so but yeah that's that's cool the cool thing too with bluegrass is there's like that repertoire you know like you can mm -hmm. you get called over by doc watson and you know and there's there's a, any number of songs he could start playing that you are probably familiar with. You know what I mean? That's, I, definitely, I love that. Definitely. I've, yeah. I mean, that's how we, we learned from, from those records that he's, <laughs> right. you know, his, his casual songs are, was our, was our whole way of, of learning. Yeah. Pretty neat stuff. When you were traveling around with Larry, were you still focusing on some of like the jazzier sort of mandolin stuff or at that point where you kind of like uh, digging in? Cause you have a really great, I would say traditional style. When I listen to you, I think of a guy who spent a lot of hours uh, working on some of the the masters of that style of music. But it's a funny thing because I've I've been in situations in like jam band settings. Um, I don't know. For instance, I played quite a, for a while with Josh Williams when he was starting up his band or whatever. But like a jam, more of a somewhat traditional, but a little uh, progressive sometimes though. And I feel like those guys look at me as traditional, <clears throat> but also in the same turn, I can get in a really hardcore, like Monroe crowd, like say what my wife Lauren's in, which I love. I've always loved Bill Monroe, but I sometimes feel like those guys think he's too progressive. <laughs> he plays too many, he plays too many notes, right. which <laughs> so I honestly don't know what I am, Daniel. I'm just a fan of the music and creativity, but I'm somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, I've never wanted to throw myself out to to imitate someone else's creativity. Because another way to think about it, the guys that every or gals, the musicians that everyone copy or there's a following of their style, they're all original, big time. Nobody played like Bill Monroe before he did, you know, or or Sam Bush. You know, with all the rhythm stuff he invented, I mean, right? There's so much of that. There's so much of that rhythmic stuff did not happen before he came along. So, um, but yeah, so that makes me think of the the true creators. I mean, to take your place with them, you can't be one of them. You can't be that person. You know, so absolutely, it's a touch and go situation. Um, in fact. From from Larry, I went into the Lost and Found band, which is a band I've dearly loved since that first day at the Bluegrass Festival. They were there as well. So I got to see Dempsey Young and the Lost and Found for the first time. And I remember his mandolin playing was just, it really floored me. Just the, the tone. And he, he was that. He was traditional, I would think, but very creative. It sounded like no one... And so I, I found myself in that band after Gypsy Young passed away. Um, I got to know him well all the, the years that, that I was playing with Larry Sparks. That you know They were both on Rebel Records. We were around each other all the time. And we would find ourselves backstage in the corner of a room or on their bus or you know behind the bus late at night. And just I would come at him with questions. And he would just show me. He would, or he would. He wanted to play my mandolin a lot. He was really encouraging. He he loved my mandolin that I played back then, which was a hutto, which is what he played. <clears throat> so he would grab my mandolin, and I think looking back now, he was doing that to 
pretty much work with me, show me stuff. And I would ask him, how did, how do you do that weird sound that you do on this backup? <laughs> and he would go, oh, well, there's nothing to it. And he would stretch his pinky like 10 inches down the fretboard. <laughs> and he'd do something really, I was like, how do you, how do you think that? How do you discover that? And, you know, he would say stuff like, well, you just, I got a lot from steel guitar players or, you know, and it, what I'm preaching, you know, be, be different. You know, and one of the, one of the things he said to me that I always remember, I, I think it was the last thing he said to me before he passed away that I saw him. He said, you're playing different. He said, and that's what you got to do. He said, that's the only way people will remember you. And, you know, that's, that says it all. So that's, that's been my mentality all along as a player. Um, you know, yeah. What was it? But, what was it like yeah. to get that call to be? I mean, again, you know, one of your influences it sadly mm-hmm. passes away, and then you get the call from the band <laughs> to to um yeah because it, it was you filled you finished the CD. He was he was partially on. Yeah, it's literally half and half. He's on six. Well, he's on five and a half tunes, and I'm on five and a half. Um, there was one tune, and I don't think it's it's not listed in the credits, but he was he wanted to change some stuff. He wasn't happy with it, and so they give me the liberty to go in and play on the part that he didn't like. So with what I thought he would like. So what tune? That, is, what tune is that off that album? Do you remember? Oh, I'd have to I, I'd have to look at the song titles to remember it. Yeah, but um. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the song, but but yeah, so it, it was uh, very exciting, nerve wracking, um, emotional at times. I mean, two and a half weeks later, or maybe three weeks later after he passed, they were playing a show, and I was standing there in his spot. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, and all of it was um, it was a just a strange experience. Um, all the musicians and the other bands came and watched. They were lined up on the walls That's to support Alan Mills and the Lost and Found. You know, I don't think it was so much to see if I was going to bomb or, <laughs> or get through it. <laughs> Just to show support, though. People like Dole Lawson and his band. and uh, In fact, Larry Sparks was there. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And I think it was um, Jekyll Island, Georgia, or Myrtle Beach. It was one of, one of those two... Um, Norman Adams festivals. It was a somewhat of a blur. And Alan Mills, he he wasn't going to rehearse much. He's like, you know that song, you know that song. And he again, like like Sparks, he had faith in me. He mm-hmm. just, you know, let's do it. And and it and that and that lasted until the end. I mean, we're not, you know, they're not officially disbanded, but I mean, there's not any more shows with the Lost and Found. Pretty much, if. If something come up close by, Alan would probably take it, mm-hmm. and we would find ourselves back on stage. But and I told him I would I want to do this until the end. I feel like that I've accomplished that part. Um, but even at that, with Dempsey's voice in my ear, you know, be do your own thing. <laughs> that I've I've kind of moved away from it. I feel like I feel like I can do it to a certain degree. Nobody could play like Dempsey. Um, I was I was getting close. I had my moments, maybe, and the tone production and that similar interest was built in already. But I I had to step away from it. And the first the first round of that was I got rid of my Hutto mandolin, which sounded an awful lot like his mandolin. Um, played it for twelve or thirteen years, and I don't know. I just felt like as much as I love him and that music, I didn't want to go down as a pretty good Dempsey Young copy. And that's kind of what happened with that. And I, I, I don't want to, yeah. I mean, it's a touchy subject though. It's sure. a touchy subject because it's such a special opportunity and it meant a lot to me. But that says a lot about you because a lot of people would just, 
you know, it's sometimes it's just easy to keep doing the same thing and you get caught in there. And then next thing you know, you're looking back and going like, oh man, you look what I did. You know, it's 10 years yeah. later, or 15 years exactly. later, and I'm still, I didn't exactly. do any of these things that I wanted to do. Exactly. And you know, the, say the workshop scene, for instance, how, how good that's going nowadays. Well, I was, I, I was asked to do Dempsey Young workshops. I've done maybe two of them and it just felt strange for me to do that. Sure. You know? I didn't want to be, and like you said, I didn't want to be 10 years later, you know, going around doing, and, and again, I mean this with all due respect, but not to, you know, to waive that because Dempsey was all about creativity and that's what he, that's what he preached. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, kind of in a way then you're kind of carrying on, just kind of carrying on his wishes in the same way by, by stopping to do that and doing your own thing, you know, like you're saying, like those yeah. last words to you or, you know, well, kind of, kind of like uh, the old saying, if you love it, you have to let it go. Yeah. Or, or the, my, one of my favorite Miles Davis quotes, he said, I stopped playing ballads because I love playing ballads. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he, and, and not that I mastered the Dempsey thing, but he felt like he's completed that part of his, his artistry and he's moving on. Yeah. Well, and you did do your own album. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was just about trying to, to get my stuff out there. I've, I've never stopped writing music. Um, although I felt like I've fallen short a little bit in terms of selling it or if not selling it, I'm getting it out there. <laughs> right. Right. But, yes. Uh, selling it is a, a, a interesting way to say anything about music any longer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. It's like you can you can come up with it, boy, but you can't sell it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a release. And prior, I had a couple tunes, original tunes on Sparks Records. always play those on the show and it like i said it's very gratifying but the the most important thing about it for me is is to create you hope people like like if they like it it's it is very rewarding but um you know i've i've done a lot of it in private but this day and time it's easier to capture that and to record it and put it out there Unfortunately, it's usually for free, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. But you can just you can just blast it on social media, uh, and I do that sometimes just because. I mean, I think um, if it inspires one person, it, it was worth doing it. You know. Oh man, all the videos I see that you put, if yeah. like when you have some stuff that's out there that you put out, or if you you know you're on like one of the mandolin Facebook pages or whatever, I always find it inspiring. Man, I think your playing's just so good and great tone and tasteful, man, and so you're inspiring one guy anyway. <laughs> I appreciate that, Daniel. Same same for you and what what you're doing for and with the mandolin community. Oh, um, thanks, man. And and your the work with the the mandolin cafe. I mean that that has been such a staple since what 1995 or something. Yeah, it pretty much it started. It's yeah, it started its career pretty much the same year I did. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always it's always been there, and younger mandolin players. It's uh, it's been there the entire time, and that's that's very gratifying for Scott Chincher and the the work that's that's been involved with that. He's know? such a great guy. I actually, literally was texting him five minutes before you and I. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. We were, he sent me a quick message, and I'm like, oh cool, man. Yeah. What Shoot, a nice I, guy. I, rem I remember getting on there when you had when you had dial up. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but definitely that is a big. Um, Biggie for the the mandolin community and those old forum, the message board posts and gosh, I've learned so much about old instruments and stuff. Oh yeah, in particular from that. Man, the um, knowledge some people have, it is 
amazing to me. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. People like Daryl Wolf and Tom Eisenhower, I mean, I've I got to know those names because of the Mandolin Cafe forum. <laughs> oh, no, no kidding. And now they're great friends and they're just they're always there. I mean, and they're they would be there for anyone who seeked out this stuff in terms of like vintage instruments and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's incredible. So let's get to your um. You're currently a, a, a teacher at the Kentucky School of Bluegrass. How did you uh, how did you find yourself doing that? Yeah, I've um, I was remotely familiar with what was going on here with the Osborns connection. Of course, Dean Osborne is the director of the program, and uh, Bobby Osborne works up here two days a week. Well, up until currently with the with the pandemic, but I, I don't know. I just started thinking about stability and then i started thinking how in the heck do you do that you know with with the mandolin with bluegrass music i mean it's a tough gig i mean you can count on one hand the really successful people that's been through just just through the music so and then my desire to teach you know um again being around seeing younger musicians come up and by by that time i've had 15 16 17 years of traveling experience experience although that was I mean, literally it's half my age of worth at that time. So I just reached out to the program, um, sort of forgot about it, you know, just went on about my business. A couple years later, I got a call and they, they couldn't just hire me on the spot, but I, I was notified that an opening was coming and I just jumped in. I started going through the process of, of, trying to get hired, you know, which was a pretty long drawn out. And I had a lot, lots of help because I was coming in blindly to the higher education world. I mean, I mean, I had to go to summer school to graduate high school because I was traveling so much by then and missed all this school. Wow. <laughs> and and then found myself, you know, going for this. And, and, and once again, they, they had faith in me, you know, my track record and my, my, obviously my life had been devoted to, to play in bluegrass music and I'm and I was coming back home, you know, Hazard's my hometown where the college is and the bluegrass schools in Hyden, which is where I live now. But the timing was right. Um, I was at the, the right place at the right time and mentally and ma- mature enough to, to jump in. And I've, I've worked hard and from that point on to get to um, be an associate professor. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Did you have to develop your own curriculum or did they have a curriculum kind of in place already? It was in place, but it was it's it's rapidly and always changing. Of course, right now everything's going online. And we were probably the first to be that far online before the pandemic sort of forced everyone to to do this stuff online. Yeah, but our remote location, I think, uh, caused us to be way back before that. In fact, we have students in Japan and New York City, all over the country. Oh, get out of here, uh, really? Yeah, cool. we just totally, totally online. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I love it. And I, I still get to play all the time. I'm not traveling as much, although I'm working on some situations to where I could be back in a, a traveling band. It's oh, too soon to talk about. Sure, nice. <laughs> and, al- and also uh, talking about a, a duet record uh, that could be coming up in the near future. I'm excited about that. Oh, wow. Cool, man. You have to but, yeah. keep me in touch on those things. I'll be sure I'll to do shout them out. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, I, I don't, re- I didn't really want to trade one for the other. And you were also doing camps as well here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. The Bobby Osborne Mandolin Roundup. I've, I create, I started that just from a need of, for, for starters, okay, Bobby's here two days a week. Um, and I was hearing stuff like, is Bobby really there? Does he come up there and work? Or is he like a mascot? School? <laughs> I'm like, no, he's here two days a week religiously in snowstorms. And I've, I mean, he, yeah, he's up here picking. And about a dozen students a week get the privilege of setting one-on-one with him in an office wow. to to learn mandolin and tell and stories and all this stuff. So I got to thinking we need to show this to the world, to the mandolin community, you know, that this is, this is a thing. This happens here in our little schoolhouse. And so we started and at Bobby's suggestion, he said, 
something like, why don't you put that up on YouTube? <laughs> you know, let's film us. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And then we just, we just started doing little duets and Laura, my wife, Laura and Price, she was coming around and we saw, so we saw us to do trios. And that's what started um, the weekly videos we had started putting up. And, and Bobby really just get He loves harmony playing. I mean, his knowledge of old fiddle tunes and and harmony parts is just incredible and so and a lot of it has gone unheard i mean his ability to do that so I, I started we started putting out those little informal videos from bobby's office you know and we didn't want to slick them up too much we didn't want to make it like a little tv show or anything and we would just stick the phone up and play and from that a lot of interest came from faraway places you know people's like i wish i could just come there one day and do that. I would give anything to come to Hyden and sit with Bobby. So also I should mention that the Osborne Brothers Hometown Bluegrass Festival happens here in August. We set it up for one day that happens during the festival. And the goal is, which is what our videos were, we would learn a song in an hour and then record it in three part harmony. So with the with the camp I thought we could take one day, learn a song in three-part harmony, perform it on stage at the festival. And so it's a it's a great experience for the the students, especially if you're a fan of the Osborne Brothers, you know. Oh, yeah. Because you find yourself on stage playing a song with Bobby Osborne at the end of the day. And then we also brought a special guest, Herschel Sizemore, this, this last one. This, not the very last one, the last in-person one. It's very gratifying, like I said, to – to get to work with and befriend with some of your heroes, you know, and, and I guess to hire them even. So <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like I've created this thing that, that it's like paying back to, to them, you know, it's a gig for them. So absolutely. If that makes sense. It totally and, makes sense. Yeah. Man, what a cool, what a cool experience. They had never been on stage together. I never knew any of this. Really? They had been friends for 50 or 60 years, but wow. they, they really, they were great. I mean, and just for, for the students, you know, from all over the country, all ages, to find themselves in this little room with these guys, mm-hmm. you know, um, like I said, it's just, it's very gratifying to, to be, well, all things mandolin. So uh, I've, I never thought, never dreamed I would be the creator in a mandolin camp promoter for Bobby Osborne, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's it's all it's it's all about the music. Absolutely. So, yeah. Man, speaking of music making things, let's talk about your main acts. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, what is your number one? Oh, it, it is a nineteen thirty nine F five, and as as I mentioned earlier, I played the Hutto mandolin for a lot of years, <clears throat> and I just I, and part maybe some of this was due to, of course, Bobby Osmond's fern is is one of the greatest mandolins in this world. I, I was around it weekly. was playing it every week. And I just like, I want something like this, you know? And of course, we, I mean, it's not all about the year model or if it's an old mandolin, but a friend of mine down in Middlesboro, Kentucky owns a bunch of vintage instruments. He owns four or five Lloyd Lures, oh, seven wow. or eight twenties ferns and on and on and on. If he owns, Vassar Clemens' fiddle, you know, all, I mean, you name it. Holy cow. Um, yeah. And he's a great friend of mine from the beginning. My first good mandolin came from him. His name's Larry Cadle. I don't think he would mind me sharing that, but I just always um, been involved with him. I've helped him find instruments that he wanted to buy. In fact, he owns Dempsey Young's Hutto mandolin. He owns that one even. Wow, um, man. Oh, man. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so it all started, I was going down, I was going to go down to his place and borrow a 29 fern to play for the entire summer. I thought, this is too good to be true. And he offered it and I'm like, okay, you name the time and place. (laughs) So I went to get it and he, you know, we're just hanging out and he's, he's pulling out stuff out of his, it's an old bank vault. Um, And he's pulling out all this stuff. And then way on into it, I mean, there's like lures everywhere and, you know, ferns and unsigned or a 25 fern. I think it's the serial number next to David Grisman's fern. I mean, just like huge stuff. He come out, then he came out with this battered case. He says, 
here's a 39. He said, Aubrey Haney really likes this mandolin. And I, I even cracked the joke. I'm like, well, I probably should have played it first. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> after playing all these, all these mandolins, I probably don't want to see that. Right. And he, and he gets it out and the strings were all, you know, down. Action was super low. And before I even got it in tune, I was freaking out. I mean, the way the D's and G's sounded as I was string, I was just tuning the pitch up. It just spoke to me right out of the gate. And it has a very small neck. I mean, not as small as a fiddle, but I mean, have you ever seen those Ricky Skaggs Gibson models? Oh, yeah, yeah. Out? Yeah, I played I guess, one or two of them. Close to, close to that. Really slim. And 30s F5s are known to have like baseball bat necks, you know. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, I just, I really loved the way it felt in my hands and stuff. And long story short, I left with that mandolin and <laughs> I, I, he, I turned down the 29 fern and left with the 39, <laughs> um, to play. And I've played it ever since I've, I set out to borrow it for the summer and by October I was making payments on it. <laughs> so, yeah. And he made it very possible for me to get it. So. I'll be forever grateful for that. You know, it was, I mean, I want to talk figures, but sure, he, sure. he set up a plan to where I could, I could not have, I could not do this. Um, and um, so, yeah, I just, I love it. And then I started doing a bunch of research about it and it's had a very interesting and exciting life. I mean, it was, it was shipped in 1941 to um, York, Pennsylvania to a place called Julius Music House. And, this lady named Jane Clare, and they had a band, Jim and Jane, and their Western Vagabonds. And she was playing with people like, um, you know, Roy, a Roy Acuff, um, Gene Autry. Um, for, for instance, she'd been on stage with Hank Williams with the, the mandolin two Whoa. times. Oh, no <laughs> I'm, way, I'm, really? I'm trying to find a photo of that. But yeah. It, yeah, it happened. And I, like I said, I would love to get a photo of that. But, and then there's there's records. Yeah, I have set two seventy eights that it's on. It just it really neat, you know the the history. How I mean, it's it's very inspiring. People say well, you just like that thing because it's old. That's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not all of it. But yeah, I mean that the history that comes with those instruments. I mean, it's almost like they have a soul. You know, I mean. But but beyond all that, regardless, I just it really s spoke to me. It. Um, it, it's really all that I want to play. It's it's a great feeling to to have that to have that um, contentment, you know, with with what with what you're playing every single day. Hopefully for the rest of your life. And what do you uh, what do you string it up with? Well, I've for the most part GHS. Mm -hmm. um, I've I worked with him. In fact, from this mandolin um, with Jonathan Moody and the guys at GHS to come out with pure nickel strings and. I was proud to to make that happen, and I love I love the strings for my mandolin. And you know, it's like it's a it's a funny thing. No no certain set of strings is right for every instrument. It's it's what they like. So, and then how about picks? I think if I look back as a whole for at least the past ten or twelve years, I've it's a, say a blue chip Kenny Smith forty. Um, but I've used everything, man. I have I have old tortoise shell that I've had for since I was a teenager. The same picks I, I current sometimes pull out, um, and then the the Andrea Proplex. Oh yeah, I, I really like that pick on the on the shoulder, like Sam Bush style. Mm -hmm. um, you know, go into a studio and and it's gonna it's noiseless that like blue chip. Um, I tend I tend to use. I think the the secret to that from for me, for my opinion, is to play very close to the to the edge, whether it's the rounded part or the point. And it eliminates so much variant that picks, you know, the whatever that picks do to change your sound for for better or worse, that takes it away. But you sound like you. It sounds more like your hand than the pick. And I learned that from Dempsey Young because his mandolin had the extension you know, the Florida, if you will. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he always played way up there, you know, for that, that tone that he had, you, you can never catch him sounding clicky like the pick click. And I asked him one day, I'm like, how do you, why do you never do that? I mean, I was having mine sawed off, you know? <laughs> right. And he's like, well, you know, you got to play close to the edge. And he showed me how he held the pick and he, he loved the rounded pick as you might imagine. But 
it's barely there. I mean, he could have just used you could take you could take say a teardrop pick and cut it in half, and it would it would be enough for him. Wow. I mean, and I started thinking that way. I started playing, and I still to this day catch my make sure that I'm my fingers are just very little pick exposed, and it but it eliminates the thickness or thinness. You can take a a thin pick like a Dunlop nylon and just and, and and hold it very close to the edge and get the same results like from a 1.5 for so it, it's you know and I, I'm, I'm i'm trust me i'm all hung up on gear <laughs> but i have i have figured out a, a way to where it, it really doesn't matter as much i mean you you figure out how to get the sound you want out of whatever you're you're working with um it's a strange thing and i think it's different for every set of hands I don't think there's a magic there's a magic secret to that. Um, I do think that loosening up causes you to play louder. I look at videos of me in my early twenties and I'm so stiff and I'm trying so hard to to play well and hard. And it's like it's like you're trying to drown. You're you're in water and you can't swim. You're fighting to stay up, <clears throat> but you you loosen up everything and and it's and then you. It's almost like you quit caring and then it happens. <laughs> but it's not it's not that you quit caring, you just quit you quit trying so hard. <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Be loose. Be loose. That, you know. Yeah. This is a this is a, this is a great uh a great lead into if you had 10 minutes a day to recommend to a player any level, what would you recommend somebody to work on for 10 minutes a day? This is not an answer that people want to hear, but scales scales i mean even if you don't let them dominate your playing or your solos but the big the biggest thing about that is scales with the emphasis on your pick um how to play through the strings um and it, it's not about just thrashing or hitting it real hard um but you just you play through the string almost like a rest stroke in gypsy jazz because you know we have pairs of strings i'm just talking from the mandolin outlook here um and just visually, you know, imagine that it's one string. So I, I do entire workshops just on taking a G major scale and working, showing how to get the most tone and the most out of your instrument with your right and left hand. Um, so, but the point is it eliminates, it's not even about the notes. Um, but, but scales, um, tremolo seems to be a hard nut to crack for good players um i think especially a non-traditional player feels early on like they don't really need that you know but here's the thing that mastering tremolo would help you play triplets and at lightning speed because you take one note say in the e string fifth fret the a note and you just practice tremolo and you're you know your pick's going 90 mile an hour right you know up and down okay so you start Replace every note. Every note is a different note with that same pick stroke. And you're playing like mad, you know, <laughs> you're so, but the point is that that boring tremolo to some players is, is everything to learning how to play triplets or 16th, you know, crazy fast. That's what you, that's what your pick is doing. You know, if you want to play flight of the bumblebee, <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, or if you want to play in the pines, constant tremolo, it's the same number of rotations. So I, th I think my, what I like most about teaching is um, to try to teach play players how to be better musicians. Does that make, I mean, it's not, it's not so much about this kind of music or that song or this song or don't play like that. That's too noty or, you know, you're not, this is how so-and-so did it. You're doing it wrong. I'm not about that. It's about, <clears throat> I like to absorb their style, their taste, what they're wanting to get out of it. And I go that way. So I've, I've never tried to change a player's desire to, uh, to go a certain direction. Um, I think a lot of the <laughs> workshops and instructors who thrive off the lessons tend to do that. And I'm not, you know, this is just my opinion. I'm not down playing that mindset, but I think I think they try to. A lot of music teachers try to mold the student into what they're after, 
and that's that's I think that's a grave mistake. As well, say a, a great producer will take a band, and maybe they don't even like their sound, but they know what they're going for, and they know how to get you know cause them to achieve that, even if they secretly don't like the music. <laughs> so you know that's that's what I try to do as a teacher. You know. Yeah. Do you teach private lessons as well? Yeah, I, I do, but. To be honest, I'm I'm so consumed with the the work at school. If if someone comes at me, I'll tend to I try to get them in our system. Um, for starters, it's ridiculously cheap if you do that, because <laughs> our school is it, the lessons are one credit hour, um, and it's it's around two hundred bucks for sixteen lessons. I mean, and I, oh, I mean wow. it's hard to do that. Probably oh, that's that's you know, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah, so that I tend to do I tend to do that. I tend to make school students out of people who come at me for, for lessons. Um, but yeah, I do. I mean, and there's, there's occasions that I, that I'll do that, but yeah, I, I just love to, to see creativity come alive. Yeah, man. So, that's great. Um, it, and it's, fl- it's flattering if they want to rip off the way I would play something and play <laughs> it back to me. It's yeah. flattering for a minute, but I'm like, let's come up with your real way of playing that. Forget me. <laughs> That's that's my mindset when I teach. So yeah, well, you got to have the tools, man, yeah. in the toolbox. You know, it's yeah. you know, there's a bunch of different screwdrivers, but each one does something different for each person. So mm-hmm. cool, yeah. man. Well, I got one question left for you, Scott. This has been an awesome talk. I really appreciate you doing this, and oh, I'm um, proud to be on it. Oh, thanks, man. And you're not a beer dude, so my question to you is: If you were to pick up your mandolin today, what tune would you play? Uh, pro- <laughs> just without without thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it, it's ever changing. But I've I've been on a Texas fiddle tune kick as of late. Uh, stuff like lime rock and um, and that yeah, probably. And and then I love I love something like um, Arkansas Traveler. You know, mm-hmm. um, some something that I'm so familiar with, and I've. I'll, I'll take something like that and back to what I was saying about creativity and just think about different ways to play phrases. So my, my casual playing is, is that it's more think tank stuff, but let's go with Arkansas traveler tonight. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And, um, for those listening and, and you're like, uh, you know, um, where can I get Scott's CD? The CD is out of print, but when yeah. Scott when Scott gets it up there online, he'll let me know, and I'll be sure to uh, I'll be sure to advertise the heck out of it because uh, I think people want to hear that. So, and I've been tempted to just put the thing on YouTube for free. Sure, so, put it know. up there with like a Venmo or a PayPal if people want to donate. Yeah, there you go. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Better chance than with Spotify. <laughs> yeah. I also want to send you some some new stuff that I've never released. Um, just some of the some mandolin, original mandolin music. I so. would love to hear it. Scott, thank you so much, man. Thank you. And, and to all the mandolin players out there and that will be listening to this, I hope, I hope that you do find some inspiration out of it. And if you have any questions, uh, look me up on social media. I'm I'm here for you, and I'm likely playing the mandolin. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect.
All right. Thanks to Scott. Thanks to my sponsors. Thank you, Mandolin Cafe, Peghead Nation, Northfield Instruments, Ear Trumpet Labs, and Pava Mandolins. Be sure to reach out to Scott about those classes at the uh, school. That's a great deal. 200 bucks for 16 classes. It's, you can't beat it. So be sure to check that out. Everybody have yourselves a fantastic week. And don't forget, next week at the end of the episode, I'll be premiering a tune from Scott. Cheers, everybody.